We're trying to open the aperture as much as we can to help identify individuals that are likely to be successful in training. We see this as uh, having great potential for just getting the right people in the right places and making individuals' aptitude known to them. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Rachel Melling of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're joined by Mr. Lauren Ams, Chief Technology Officer for Ideal Innovations, Inc. We're talking with Mr. Ams about his work to measure the distinctive characteristics of innate talent and identify high performers using brain activation response. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or the Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Welcome, sir. It's good to be here. A pleasure to be on the Convergence Show. Well, we're really excited to talk to you today. Can you first start out telling our audience just a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today? Sure. My education was in physics, and my concentration in uh, physics was remote sensing technologies and signal processing. And I've taken those skill sets and not had a very linear path in my career I started out uh, exploring for oil and gas, looking for new reserves of oil and gas uh, using remote sensing techniques. And along the way, invented a few uh, data acquisition and data processing uh, techniques to improve oil and gas exploration. But from there, I moved on uh, supporting the Navy with uh, anti-submarine warfare, where I was using my skills in acoustics and vibration, data collection, and signal processing to reduce the signature of our boats while improving the detection of signatures and classification of potential threats to our boats. So I did that for a number of years. And then after uh, 9-11, I joined Ideal Innovations, where we supported the Army's Rapid Equipping Force under Colonel Bruce Jetty. It's gone now, but at the time, it was uh, serving a very important function of identifying urgent operational needs and quickly coming up with solutions, either that could be acquired, COT solutions or developmental solutions, but get those solutions in prototype form, uh, transition them to the warfighter and uh, to meet their needs. Uh, so that was a, a very rewarding experience. And in that experience, I was applying my uh, remote sensing technologies, especially to detection of improvised explosive devices. We made great progress in identification, neutralization, and mitigation of IEDs. And that was a very, very rewarding work where all of my, you know, those funny twists and turns in my career path were brought together to apply it to a, a number of problems that were, I thought, very meaningful. While we were doing that, Ideal Innovations developed a, a reputation for identifying problems, uh, solving problems, and getting solutions to the hands of the warfighter. And along the way, someone asked us to work on a problem of deception detection. So we got involved in that project and we were using uh, EEG and electroencephalogram for uh, detecting when people showed that they had knowledge of things that they may deny that they have knowledge of. And it's also very useful in, in just detecting what people know. So we, we got involved with EEG there and uh, th that was 
had its uh, successes, and we were looking for a broader application of EEG to address some problems we've recognized in the military. And one of the problems we recognized was there's a lot of uh, resources expended on training people that don't successfully complete their training. There's a lot of attrition, especially for specialized uh, duty positions, highly technical, or, or they just have very high requirements of, of the persons. And a lot of these um, people just don't make it through training. So we, we saw an opportunity to apply EEG to uh, the problem of uh, reducing attrition in training. So, sir, it really sounds like you've built your career around finding meaningful solutions to help the warfighter. And so can you talk a little bit about how are you using brain activation response to discover innate talent and a little bit more about the problems that you're trying to solve? Well, sure. As I said, we, we recognize there was a lot of waste in training. Not that the efforts to train were, were wrong, but some people just didn't have the right stuff. We collected some information on, you know, the cost, the true cost of not having people uh, with the right stuff, whatever the right stuff is, in these positions. So, for instance, it, it costs like $13 million to put a pilot in the cockpit of an F-35. And not because they spent $13 million on that one individual that makes it to the cockpit, but they spent a lot of money on training people that washed out. Uh, similarly, DOD special operations, training for special operations, you know, you know, they have a reputation of being very, very selective and very demanding in their skill levels. But 66%, you know, two out of every three individuals that start in training for a special operations uh, duty position, they don't make it. So we see an opportunity that if we could high grade the abilities or bring people in with a, a higher ability to be successful in training and performance, then we can make more efficient use of our training resources. There's a lot of uh, news articles now about Army is 25,000 people short of their recruiting objectives for last year. They expect it to be something like that this year. Perhaps we can help in getting people with the, the right skill sets into training that, that they'll be more successful and more efficient use of uh, resources. So there's a couple of factors we've identified or are frequently identified to address why do these people not make it in training? And I, I think that we think that uh, a lot of this has to do with the current selection and assessment instruments that are used. Knowledge-based selection instruments are a problem because if it's knowledge-based, anyone can study for these selection and assessment tools or instruments. And I went on Amazon and you can find study guides for Army aviation or Air Force aviation. So you can acquire the knowledge to score well on an instrument, but not really have all of the skills and aptitudes necessary to be successful in performing those duties. Another issue is some of the instruments that are used for say flight training, is they, they have uh, personal interviews and personality inventories. And we found, and it's not that we found it, it's, it's very well documented in, in the literature, that uh, people can answer questions in an interview or personality inventory in the way that they think that the re recipient of that inventory wants to hear it. You know, if you're if you're applying for a position in sales and then when the question is, oh, do you like interacting with people? Oh, absolutely. You may be a very strong introvert, but if you want that job, you know how to answer the questions. 
So we were looking for a way to take out the knowledge of performing a particular duty and your, your desire to fit what they're looking for. If you take those out, then maybe you can find the innate skill sets required for success. So that's what, where EEG comes in. We can pose problems to a brain of an individual to cause it to, to respond. So that's why we're talking brain activation response. We evoke a response uh, to problem solving. And because EEG or the signals from brain activation response are pre-conscious, you don't have a chance to shape your answer. You know, your brain responds in a certain way. We can detect how it responds. Uh, we may not know everything that's going on there, but we know it responds in a pre-conscious way, and we can record that. That's objective measurements. So we use EEG to sidestep knowledge of, of performing a duty position and any self-reporting bias, whether it's intentional or, or unintentional, in their response. So that's, that's where EEG comes in, and our objective is to find those innate aptitudes of successful individuals performing these duty positions and find what features are characteristic of their response and then look for those features in a general population, a, a population of potential recruits for training in that duty position. For ideal innovations, a lot of our work involves biometrics. And if you look in my previous work in anti-submarine warfare or oil and gas exploration, any number of things, you look for the signature of what it is you're looking for. You identify what are the characteristics of that signature. And then you can go, when you find that signature elsewhere, you say, ah, we know what that is. And so we're looking for the signature of innate capability, non-learned capability. This is just aptitudes that uh, individuals have that enable them to be successful in training and performing particular specialized vocations. I think that's extremely interesting. And we've looked at um, China's kind of core of engineering and, and scientific talent, uh, so to speak, and young people that were really good test takers. They had, they had learned how to become ultimate test takers. Um, and there was a lot of complaints by supervising engineers and, and people they were working for saying, yeah, they, they were great at taking tests, but then they couldn't do kind of transitive learning or meet a number of these tasks, but they were really good at test taking. So I think that's extremely interesting. And then, you know, you, you kind of answered this somewhat already, but why did you choose brain activation response over maybe other comparative metrics? So you said kind of why why not, you know, just testing and how it's traditionally done, but is there, you know, other comparative metrics that could have been done in terms of hand-eye coordination, uh, response times outside of just the brain activity? Why do you think brain activation response is really the best? We do have some reasons for selecting uh, brain activation response and EEG in particular. In, in our long-term view of discovering innate capabilities of individuals, you know, we need to be able to evaluate individuals and see if their response, their brain activation is similar to the response of a group of known high performers in that vocation, whatever it may be. And so we, we need something that is, that's capable of being taken to a large population. That means it needs to be inexpensive. It needs to be highly portable, 
it needs to be something that is uh, well understood and economical uh, cost-wise. And EEG fits those criteria. I mean, we see down the road, if you have, um, say you're trying to do selection assessment for special operators, special operations, they may look at 100 individuals and pick two for training. Just I'll throw that number out. So you have to be able to look at a whole bunch of people to get to capture the ones that are going to be most likely to be successful in training. Many people ask us, well, why not uh, uh, functional MRI? There is a lot of uh, uh, research, a lot of uh, uh, information out there on how fMRI can be used to find what parts of the brain are activated to solve certain problems. And it's, it's good at it. But how many people do you want to run through an fMRI machine? I mean, it's, it's expensive, it's bulky, it's heavy. It doesn't fit the bill. EEG is simpler. And it comes with its own peculiarities. I mean, you're looking for very small signals in a potentially noisy environment. You need to collect a lot of data, a lot of signal processing involved, but it's inexpensive, portable, safe, and uh, satisfactory for the job. Sir, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the test that you've already performed with the U.S. Army. So you tested this theory with flight leads in the Army's 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Can you tell us a little bit more about the test, maybe a little bit why you chose the flight leads as the test, and then how do you see this differing with different MOSs or other branches? So the 160th, they are special operators. They are the elite of elite. One of our thoughts were, if we can't find a signature of these people that differs from the general population, then maybe this is a task too hard. I think they are... They think and act differently than your average Joe in the general population. So that was one reason we thought they were highly specialized. We also had uh, access to them through connections uh, within the uh, community. And the 160th is interested in helping us do this. Now, the 160th, because of their uh, unpredictable uh, nature of their operational tempo, they couldn't commit to making their flight leads available in any sort of schedule. And in those early days, this is very low TRL. I mean, it's researchy. It's like, you know, if this works, it's great, but you know, we don't know if this is going to work. So instead of using active duty flight leads, we were able to communicate with a number of retired flight leads that are still active in training the 160th pilots. So this way we were getting the same quality of individuals, but their schedule was a little more predictable. They were not such a um, a limited resource as the active duty flight leads. So we we got a hold of about 20 retired flight leads and all of these are still active and flying. uh, So they're they're still doing a lot of the, the functions of the flight leads, but they're available. So with these flight leads, what we wanted to do was first identify what are the characteristics the flight leads believe are important to be successful in the role as a flight lead. These retired flight leads, and even when they were active duty, you know, they would see new pilots coming in and they'd say, you know, this person, he's going to make it. And then another person, they look at that person and say, I'm not, not, not sure about this one. So there are some recognizable characteristics that they can see their intuition has been trained in a way to recognize 
these characteristics that make people successful or not. But we then went with them and said, okay, what are these characteristics that you think are important? Because we wanted to identify meaningful uh, characteristics that we could then test presence or absence for with EEG. Uh, they provided us a lot of insights into those characteristics, physical, mental, cognitive, personality characteristics, all these different characteristics. And then we took those characteristics and translated them into neurocognitive functions that we could test with stimuli. This is where we, we present stimuli to the individuals to assess the presence, or I shouldn't say the presence or absence. How do different individuals respond to uh, these stimuli that could be meaningful in performance of the role? So we took their qualifications, their, their characteristics, developed neurocognitive functions that we could test against. And then we took those neurocognitive functions and came up with stimuli that would evoke a brain's response to those stimuli. And then we measure, we observe the EEG signatures or EEG signals. Now, with those signals, we then start looking for distinctive differences in the population of flight leads compared to the general population. And there's a EEG signals, just time series, they're just a bunch of squiggles, but you're looking for features within these squiggles that are meaningful and distinctively different in these two populations. Some of those features are based strictly on time, timing, some of them are frequency. You can look at time, frequency combinations, then you look at coherence, how the signals move in the brain to, to evoke different processing centers in the brain. So we start taking apart the data that we collect to find features that are distinctively different between the flight lead population and the general population. Then from those features, we then, those features that are distinctive, we then put into classifiers to determine if we were given random samples from the population, which population do they belong to, general population, or, do they, or are they more similar to flight leads? And we found that with about 80% accuracy, we can identify or accurately allocate an individual to the population of flight leads or uh, general population. And that's just using uh, single features with combinations of features. Uh, we think we can get a much better uh, accuracy of allocating people to the right population. Now, the, the whole premise behind this is that we identify a number of features that are most distinctive. And these features, this, this collection of features that are most distinctive becomes the signature of that group. So we take the group of flight leads, which are proven high performers in their field, and we find that signature. Then we can take that signature to the general population and look for other individuals that have close similarity. And this is where we, we sort of left the program uh, with the 160th, is that we determined, yes, there are features, distinctive features between these two populations. But what we haven't demonstrated yet is that that collection of features, distinctive features, are actually predictive of training success. Uh, that is uh, going to take, you know, one to five years, depending, we've got one program where it's like, you know, we can, we can do a quasi-longitudinal study in one year to see if there's evidence of that prediction. 
But to do it right, you'd want to follow people from the time they enter Green Platoon. That's that's the entry point of all uh, people in the 160th. From Green Platoon all the way up to qualifying as a flight lead. And that takes time. But we need to do the assessment of prediction. That brings us to part of it. Now, the process that we use with the 160th could be replicated for any MOS. You would first identify what are the characteristics that make this group of high performers high performing? And then you would figure out which of the neurocognitive functions you want to assess, what are the stimuli to do that, collect the data on them. Of course, if you're using stimuli that's been done with the general population, you may not have to repeat that. But then you find the signature of that group and use that signature to then find people for training in that group. So the process similar. As we go through the evolution of this development process, I think we will be able to simplify a lot of what we're doing. Uh, we'll probably find out what's, what works best. Maybe there's a limited number of neurocognitive functions that uh, could be applied to any MOS uh, that could be uniformly used. And as it gets more and more process-oriented and we get more efficient in how we, we do data, we could do it for any MOS. And as far as a branch, you could look at a branch as um, a superset of duty positions uh, because there's a lot of duty positions within a branch and where do people fit best? So we would need to find a, a representative group of people who were considered successful or highly proficient in the branch and then find a signature for that targeted population. So a branch is just like any other MOS. You just need to find what's meaningful uh, for performance in that branch. And then you find the signature for people that are uh, high performing uh, in the branch. With all that testing, did you find after the test, uh, discover any kind of other benefits or quantitative measurements that you found helpful or could you know, aid in the future besides just the brain activity scan as it related to those duties? Uh, yeah, we, we did. It wasn't so much that we discovered something unexpected as it was we, we saw opportunity to refine how we go about doing this. Now, I've been talking a lot about the signature of a group of individuals, and, and we believe we've demonstrated, you know, we, there are signatures in groups of individuals. And that's not new. People have looked at other measures of groups of individuals and found that they have certain personality characteristics that are unique or they have certain cognitive processes that are unique. So that we would find EEG features to create a signature for a group that is unique is not surprising. But as in any group, even a group of high performers, there's a lot of commonality in their cognitive processing style, but there's also a lot of variability. So what we found in the variability is if you have, let's say an individual within this group of high performers, that person is qualified. I mean, it's qualified and known high performer, but some of the people are gonna, there's gonna be variability within the group and how they think, how they process information. So one of the things we see as an opportunity of also finding people who have the right stuff is, not only do they have the features common to a group, but they may have particular features that belong only to one person in that group. And so our feeling is if you get a one-to-one -one match for an individual 
a potential recruit or trainee for a duty position, and it matches an individual who may be an outlier within the group of high-performing ones, well, he or she still has the right stuff. We don't want to create a process that is going to exclude people from training. We want to encourage, we find individuals say, hey, you know, you may not have thought of this before, but you think just like these people over here that are high performing in this area, you you might think about training that area. And, you know, you may have other reasons to do that or not do that, but we're trying to open the aperture as much as we can to help identify individuals that uh, are likely to be successful in training. Was there any kind of divergence between what the group assessed as expert characteristics or traits and what you actually found when you did those brain activity scans where they anticipated that it was these characteristics were essential to being a, a top flight special operations pilot, but there was maybe some that they were off on since humans are notoriously bad at self-assessment and even sometimes group assessment. So was there any divergence between how they saw themselves in their group and what really showed up? Maybe, and I'll phrase it this way, uh, divergence. Well, because of the variability within the group, there there was obviously this variability, but there's also a lot of commonality. And I could show you the data and you say that you look at the data, uh, EEG response to a, to a particular uh, stimuli uh, or problem to, to engage their brain. And you can look at the data and say, yeah, I see. It looks like many of them responded this way, but there's some that don't. And, and, and that's okay. That's just fine. You know, that's a variability. But I think the issue of divergence was probably more, we're more aware of that in our expectation of results. Now, we, we had a bunch of uh, neurocognitive functions that we thought were important that would create a response that was distinctly different from general population. I mean, you think about, you know, flying an aircraft, coordinating the mission, responding to unexpected, all these things, and, and you, you see, you know, where are they most distinctly different from the general population? And it wasn't always in, in what we might consider these, these superhuman powers. A lot of times it was is in mundane executive functions or things that you say, well, yeah, everyone has that. But their response, they have it. Yeah, everyone may have it. But the EEG response, how that information is processed was different. And so our expectations, you know, what was going to be more distinctive than others that was kind of uh, uh, brushed aside because some of the things we thought would be really important, they'd be obviously dis- distinctively different, and it wasn't so. And some of the things that were more mundane, they were distinctly different in EEG processing. We've been talking about using this method and this kind of test when bringing people into certain MOSs or certain positions, but do you have any ideas on how the Army can further integrate this knowledge into education, training, and leader development, or even in an operational setting? Yes. And, and we think if this works, it's going to be transformational in how we approach education, training, and leader development in the Army, in all the military services, in government writ large, in academia, and the commercial sector. Getting the right people into the right positions where they can excel, where their their natural aptitudes and innate capabilities are used is going to be 
huge. So I'll qualify that if this works. We think it's going to work. We have indications, you know, heading that direction, but we, we need to demonstrate the predictive value of these signatures. So yes, you take, you know, a substitute uh, duty position or MOS with your target population. If you have a target population and you're trying to find what students, high school students have aptitudes for engineering, language, arts, whatever it may be, you can help direct them because you take people who are demonstrated high performers in these areas, that becomes a target group. And then you can find people, find there's that signature for that target group, and then find people and individuals who would contemplate going into these positions. So in education, getting people, helping people find those areas that they are uh, naturally skilled and get them into those positions, whether it's education, uh, which is a form of training, or training for a particular position, you know, or leader development. So we see this as uh, having great potential for just getting the right people in the right places and making individuals' aptitude um, known to them. There's probably a lot of people who have tremendous aptitude for certain applications. They don't even know about it. It, because they haven't been exposed to it. They had these aptitudes. So as far as optimizing human potential, helping guide people to where they can excel, I think would be very valuable uh, in education, training, and leader development. You asked about operational setting. We think there are applications of EEG, some very simple applications that could help in operations. And that's very different than getting people in the right training, the right path to developing their skills. But, oper you know, helping in operations, that's really a, a different topic, another big topic. But, uh, you know, I think we can help finding out if people's head is in the game appropriately, you know, for performance and whatever their duties are. And, and when they need some awareness, like, you know what, you're not at your best right now. Uh, maybe we need to take a little rest. No, I think those are fantastic applications. And also, you know, you kind of talked about needing to prove those provable results. But also, how do you see the technology evolving over the next 10 years? And I think a lot about scalability and connection for this, because as you noted, it's it's already hard to deal with, you know, just using the EEG measurement tools as opposed to even an MRI. But how minimized can this be in terms of the technology itself um, and to be able to scale it? And then do you see potential connection um, to, say, AI machine learning applications? Because right now, in an experiment with 20 individuals, that's fairly manageable for a scientific research team. But when you start talking about scaling this up and let's say you implemented it at um, you know recruit entry or officer sessions and recruiting and all these things, you know, trying to trying to put this out in the same way we do standardized tests, there's probably going to have to be some, I would think, application to help with those massive kind of data analytics. Uh, Luke, uh, those are insightful comments and insightful questions. Uh, and we've been thinking about some of those things. Your, your uh, point about uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, we see that as key to success and extracting that signature or those features that comprise the signature. We are very involved uh, in biometrics and getting signatures on individuals with different characteristics. And 
we have uh, recently brought onto our team uh, a company called Rank One Computing. Uh, Rank One Computing is, uh, is a bunch of PhDs that are very well educated in artificial intelligence, machine learning. They uh, pioneered artificial intelligence, machine learning applications for facial recognition uh, in the US. So that is a very important part of developing this capability is using uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence for extracting those distinctive differences. And when we get good at that, when, when we develop algorithms and we find out which characteristics, which features and which stimuli work best, that's gonna come through artificial intelligence machine learning. Uh, and then we can simplify the data collection and data processing and analysis of the data. I would love to see this capability get to the point where I'll, I'll, I call it, put it on the baseball cap. And the baseball cap may have, you know, half a dozen sensors in it, electrodes in it. Maybe, you know, let us be ridiculous. Maybe it's one. I don't know how many sensors are required. Right now we're collecting 64 because we don't know where the most important signals are going to come from. But we want to get this to the point where it is almost trivial to use. You put on the cap, you sit in front of your laptop, stimuli come up, a lot of stimuli is visual. It doesn't have to be visual, but visual is very, very helpful. You do the assessment and uh, you get the results. So this could be very, very low intrusion, low, low cost. Uh, it could be done very easily, but we, it's going to take a while to get there. We talked about uh, the, the need for uh, validating the predictive value of the signatures. And that's going to take one to five years. Uh, we, we can do a real quick study in one year. We propose this, but to do a long study, you, know, you want to do this over a long period of time and then ensure that we're looking at the right things and it's truly predictive. And then along the way, we'll be developing understanding what are the uh, neurocognitive functions most important for finding the distinctive differences between populations? You know, what are the right features? Uh, what's the right processing pipeline to uh, you know just you know cut through all the the experimentation and get down to what works best? And we see that as this becomes more streamlined and uh, broadly used across multiple MOSs or duty positions or whatever the target populations may be, build a library of signatures so that now we're not looking just, you know, between two populations. Now we're looking at people coming in and saying, you know, put on the cap and uh, look at the stimuli and say, you best match this MOS and second is third and fourth. So then we'll have the ability to say, not just that they fit in one category, but which of many categories do they fit best? And what are their second, third, and fourth alternatives? So we see this, you talked about standardized testing. I don't know if it'll be so widespread as standardized testing, but it'll be along a similar path or a similar use case where you take, you look, administer the evaluation to a bunch of people and see how they best match up against a whole bunch of uh, applications of their innate capabilities. What are your thoughts on false negatives? And is there any concern in denying someone the ability to continue training? So it's important to us, and I think important to the Army as well, that a tool like this is not used to exclude people from training. 
Uh, you don't want to say, you know what, you can't do this. I'm not that confident in the results. I think there's been movies made about, you know, testing and evaluation and, you know, you have to go to this or, or you're an outlaw. Okay, so we're not going to go there. But I am confident. I'm not a social scientist. I'm, I'm a physicist. <laughs> uh, my view of the world uh, may run contrary to social scientists sometimes. But I believe that every individual has innate capabilities. We all have something that we can be good at. And I think we all want to be involved in something that comes naturally to us and is, is meeting our, our, our desires for making a meaningful contribution to society or a group of individuals or military. We all have innate capabilities. We, we're born with strengths and weaknesses. And what we want to do is help individuals identify where their strengths are most likely to be successful in application. So we, we don't see this as, as a gate to allow people into certain vocations. Everyone has a, a set of innate capabilities. What are yours and how does that fit into areas of service? Thank you so much, sir. I really think that we've had such a great conversation today about a solution that can really help get at some of the Army's problems of putting the right people in the right place. So now we're going to move into our rapid fire questions that we ask all of our guests to kind of help our audience get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is what threat or trend keeps you up at night? Well, the threat that keeps me up at night and I put a lot of thought into is unrelated to EEG or selection and assessment tools. It's how can we provide dismounted soldiers with a capability to detect UASs, unmanned aerial systems, and how, you know, classify this, is it friendly or is it a threat? And then how can you engage that with whatever a dismounted soldier has? Uh, we've been involved, Ideal Innovations and many others are involved in, in large systems for uh, countering UASs, but they take lots of power, weight, and, and skilled operators and all this stuff. But the guys out in the, in, out in the field, the dismounts, they don't have that. So how can we provide capabilities for countering or engaging UASs by the dismounts? That's that's a, an area that I'm particularly interested in, um, in working. All right. Awesome, sir. And our next question, what is something about you that most people might not know? Ah, well, when I started college, I was poorly prepared for college and uh, especially with quantitative skills. So I chose a degree program that was light on quantitative skills. I got a bachelor's degree in geology. Like geology, I like earth science. I like looking for things, but um, you know, the, the math and the science or the math, you know, I wasn't so good at. But um, I took a graduate course in um, geophysics, and I said, "Wow, you know, all these remote sensing technologies involved in geophysics." And if I'm going to be involved in finding things, uh, that's what I want to do. So then I had to go back and re redo all the stuff that I had avoided previously, you know, quantitatively and math and physics. And I found that I was actually pretty good at it. But, uh, you know, that was a, a poor start, but good ending. So you had those innate abilities that you're looking for in everyone. Yeah, I, I didn't know I had them. And through choices I made in high school, didn't pursue them because, hey, that stuff's hard. <laughs> but you found out, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be hard. All right. And last but not least, what is your favorite movie? 
Uh, favorite movies, you know, it's like, you know, what's your favorite sunrise or your favorite sunset? I mean, there's so many and so many good ones. And with movies, sometimes they're, they're bad ones. Uh, I'm particularly critical sometimes of, uh, of movies that uh, are almost a comedy in the way they approach physics. You know, they, they suspend physics. It's sort of like Wiley Coyote, you know, physics are suspended for a certain, well, almost everything he does. So uh, a movie that I appreciated about getting a lot of the physics right while they told a good story and they, they wove the story well was The Martian. The perseverance, I mean, number one, the, the technical challenges or just all the challenges faced by this astronaut and um, finding workable solutions and uh, just getting the job done. I, I, I enjoyed that movie. All right. Well, it's been so fantastic to have you on, sir. Where can folks follow you at or see your work? You can always reach me through Ideal Innovations. You can go to our website and uh, contact me through idealinnovations.com. Be happy to uh, to respond to anyone who has questions, uh, anyone who wants to discuss further or look for other applications. Uh, we, we like solving meaningful problems affecting national security. It, it thrills us every day. Be happy to uh, communicate with anyone who wants to talk. Well, thanks so much for coming on, sir. This has been a really enlightening conversation. And I, for one, hope that we uh, extrapolate this technology out and really, uh, as you said, get the right people in the right places. Happy to help. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Lauren Ams. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on Twitter at ArmyMadSci or visiting the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 